You're listening to Susan Weed presenting Herb Drug Interactions. How real are they at the 2019 Midwest Women's Herbal Conference? Okay, who are we sitting with? Dandelion. Dandelion. Anybody know the botanical name? Taraxicum. Taraxicum officinalis. Yeah, it's not Latin. Anybody here study Latin? Anybody here take Latin? I did. I took four years of Latin. My sweetheart took seven years of Latin. Believe us, it ain't Latin, right? As a matter of fact, there's far more Greek roots than Latin roots. Officinalis is a species name, and it means that it was an official medicinal plant when Linnaeus, who was born Carl Lynn, and Latinized his name to Carolus Linnaeus. I, I, his, his mommy named him Carl. <laughs> his daddy's name was Lynn. So, <laughs> but he wanted to be, you know, Latinate, so he became Linnaeus, right? So if a plant was used as medicine when he was giving out the names, and you know, Carl, Carolus Linnaeus was charged with naming every plant, every animal, and every mineral on this planet. How would you like that as an assignment? Right, go home and name it all. Like, whoa. And not only that, he had to order them. He had to create some kind of order for them. Uh-huh. Right? So the smallest piece of the order is the species. It's specific. But it can repeat, although every plant has a two-name name that's unique to it. The species name can repeat so long as it's in a different genus. So the genus is Taraxicum. And there are other plants in the Taraxicum genus besides Taraxicum officinale. But officinale, or officinalis in this case, is a commonly repeated species name. Can you think of any other plant that ends with officinale or officinalis? What's the botanical name of rosemary? Rosmarinus officinalis. And what's the botanical name of sage? Salvia officinalis. And I don't see a lot of garlic mustard around here, but there's garlic mustard, right? Right? And what's the botanical name of garlic mustard? Alliaria officinalis. It was an official medicinal plant when Linnaeus was giving out the names. Alliaria means like garlic, allium. Okay, so we have the species, which is the specific name. Then we have the genus name, that's Taraxicum. And then those, like nesting dolls, fit into yet larger and larger and larger categories. The next larger category being family. Does anybody know what family dandelion is in? Composite. Old name. What's his Old name, because Linnaeus was a bad boy. He was a very, very bad boy. Bad, bad. He was. He was. I'm not kidding you at all. There's an entire um, genus of mushrooms named Venagetopsis. There's another one named Phalliotes. Yeah. Right? I mean, he was really, like, getting down. As a matter of fact, he was such a bad boy that a lynch mob formed outside his home hoping to kill him. Oh, dear. What were they upset about? Mints being labia? No. Uh, that was... <laughs> That, that's a, uh, that certainly is part of why we call him a bad boy. But they were deeply disturbed that the ordering system that he picked for plants was based on the sexual characteristics. Why do we have flowers in church? Because they are pure and holy and never have sex. 
Oh, good Lord. Well, there are many people who still think this. Suppose I <coughs> soaked my nether parts in water overnight, or I had some man soak his balls and penis in water overnight, and then I told you this was a flower essence for serenity and world peace. Well, isn't that what people are doing? Mm -hmm. They are soaking the penises and vaginas of plants in water overnight and telling you they're for serenity and world peace. That's what? <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Now, you soak a flower overnight in water and you tell me it's for getting, getting, getting mine or making connections with everybody or being a, a really like in a loose, then I might believe you. <laughs> but serenity and world peace, I'm not going to believe you at all. <laughs> okay, so... The rule is that the family name has to be the same as the typical genus with a suffix. And the suffix is A-C-E-A-E. A-C-A-E. Now, I lean on that last E so that you hear it. But would you say out loud the first letter of the alphabet slowly? It's not A in English. It's A. Do you hear the E that's in the A? That's called a diphthong. It makes people who don't speak English nuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because other languages don't have diphthongs, and we do. So we have two vowel sounds in one vowel. So I'll say A-C-A-E, but most people you will hear will just say A-C-A. Because that E sound is already in the A, but it is actually A-C-E-A-E. -E. And the rule in Botanese is you simply say every letter. Every single letter, right? Yeah. Where do you put the accent? Wherever you want to put the accent. You hear somebody else put the accent in a different place? That's fine, right? In America, it's echinacea. In Germany, it's echinacea. In France, it's echinacea. But you can understand all of that, right? Okay, so there'll be different accents, and that doesn't matter where the accent is. What's important is that you say every single letter. So, he did indeed call these the compositi. Uh, what's wrong with compositi? No A-C-A-E. No A-C-A-E, right. And why did he call it the compositi? Because it has lots of little tiny flowers. Because this is not a flower. This is hundreds of flowers. Have you seen this? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, if you don't, get your nose up there and start to look, and you will see that each one of the things that you think is a petal is actually an entire flower with male and female sexual parts. Thus, he called it the compositi because each flower is composed of numerous other flowers. However, there is no compositi genus, so we can't just go compositaceae which is what we'd like to do. The typical genus is Aster. So this family is now the Asteraceae. That's the female part right there, right? And the male parts are tucked down in. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Okay, welcome Dandelion, Taraxicum officinale, in the Asteraceae family. Who else is with us here this morning? Right here, Sankafoil, Potentilla, right? I don't think a year passes that somebody doesn't bring me a leaf from this plant and say, look, I found wild cannabis. Two 
<laughs> no. <laughs> All the potentellas, and there's quite a few of them, are in the Rosaceae family. So if it's the Rosaceae family, what's the typical genus? Apple. No, the typical oh, genus. Okay. Say louder. Rose? Rosa. Because remember, the family name is the typical genus with the A-C-A-E added to it. So Rosa is the typical genus. Rosaceae is the name of the family. It's a huge family. It includes not only the potentillas, but the sinkfoils, right? And they're, which are often um, confused with the, the strawberries. And it also includes most of the fruit we eat. What fruit comes from the rose family? Well, first of all, rose hips. Apples, cherries, Apples, cherries plums, plums, peaches, nectarines, apricots, raspberries, blackberries, strawberries, almonds, quince. Wow, huh? Right. Lots and lots of fruit from the Rosaceae family. They're all astringents. The leaves of everything in the Rosaceae family are astringent and so far as I know, none of them are outright poisonous. However, the inner part of the peach seed and apple seeds do contain poisons. Right? There was a young man who decided he wanted to kill himself with apple seeds, and he ate an apple every day and collected the seeds until he had a quarter of the seeds, put them in his blender, blended it up, drank it down, and died. They really are poisonous. Poisonous enough to kill you. Hmm. All right. Who else is growing here with us? Who else are we sitting on? It's like a yarrow. Yes. A of, um, yarrow. Achillea millifolium, also in the Asteraceae family. Okay. And what else? What did you see over there? I just wanted to ask you a question. Please, honey. About the apple seeds. So if you heat them, that dissipates the poisonous aspect of the seed, correct? If you do what? Heat. heat. If you heat them, Yes. Yeah, so we make our applesauce from the whole apples. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's no problem. Right. Nervous about it. Right. Well, the same thing. Pokeberry seeds are poisonous, but pokeberries are not. I just had that debate on the I've eaten pokeberry jam. I've had pokeberry lemonade. I've had pokeberry pie. You just. Yeah, they are misinformed. Yeah, you just don't want to eat the seeds, but guess what? You can't. They're hard. They're super hard, and usually they'll pass right through your digestive system. Can I ask you a question about that, which is probably related to the topic? Here. Yeah, yeah. So the American Herbal Products Association, mm -hmm. and I haven't read it myself. I just saw somebody cut and pasted it on social media, but they have a booklet that talks about the toxicity of certain plants, and they have a supposedly a documented death from poke root. From poke root. Root. Yes. But then they, have, they, they don't have the actual citation, but they do state that somebody was killed by the berry, which I don't believe. Right. But, but like... That death, so far as I know, occurred because somebody thought that poke root was wild parsnip. Yes, that's exactly it. Dug up like a dozen of them, of them. chucked them into a pot, cooked them, and then ate a huge amount. Yeah. yeah. So when we make poke root tincture, what's our starting dose? Oh, one drop. 
one or two drops. Like eating a dozen poke roots is not going to be healthy. Right. We don't recommend that you eat poke root. It does. It tastes very sweet. There's a lot of glycosides in it. All right. And glycosides can kill. Cardiac glycosides are in foxglove, right? Like, but glyco means sweet. All right. And side, C-I-D-E, herbicide, pesticide, homicide, means to kill. So glycosides are killer sugars. Right. <laughs> in small amounts, glycosides are tonics. Ginseng is loaded with glycosides. All right. But there's a whole bunch of them in small quantities. All right. And we're going to be talking about what happens when you take one of those out and turn it into a drug and how that changes what's going on. Is this boring to you, starting out looking at the plants? No. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> good. All right, that's what I thought. I mean, since we're sitting on them, I thought we should recognize them <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> All right. Clovers, lots of different clovers I'm seeing here. Oh, and here's a little sink foil there, in addition to the potentilla. Some plantain. Now, what kind of clover do you are you sitting next to? Do you have red clover there? How big are the leaflets? Are they about this big? About the size of a penny? Okay. Yes, yes. This white clover here, which has the small leaves, right, and the chevron, and then the red clover has a larger leaf. And it's misleading to say the size of a penny because the red clover leaves are oval. Mm -hmm. Whereas the white clover leaves are more round in shape. They both have that white chevron. Then that's the white clover. Okay. It's no big deal. The white clover is native to North America. The red clover is not. Within 10 years of red clover coming to Turtle Island, all native groups stopped using white clover and started using red clover, and it became one of the 10 most sacred herbs of the people who lived here in the plains. Why would that be? Who's picked red clover? Could you show us, just stand up and show us what it looks like to pick red clover? Just stand up for a minute and show us what it looks like to pick red clover. Yeah. Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Do you pick red clover on your hands and knees? How do you pick it? Okay, and you're not standing up? How, how, what, what's your body posture for picking red clover? Like this. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead, pick some red clover. Right? Okay, now pick white clover. Yeah. <laughs> the knees have it. <laughs> Not only that, red clover, um, being less wild than white clover, has been convinced to do something that is not in its best interest, which is to have all of its flowers bloom at the same time. All right? It's in the legume family, the Fabiaceae, another change, not leguminosae anymore, but the Fabiaceae. Fava beans are the typical genus, that's Fabiaceae. All right, so um, most Plants uh, don't find it wise to have all of their flowers bloom at the same time and all of their seeds ripen at the same time, right? 
that's something we do by cultivating the plants. We say, oh, excuse me, it's much easier for us if we can just harvest it all at the same time. All right, so the red clover, being a little more cultivated than the white clover, you can get perfect blooms, can't you? You can get a perfect red clover with every single flower in that head blooming right now, perfect bees buzzing around it. Whereas the red clover, the bottom flowers bloom first. By the time the top ones are blooming, the bottom ones have already turned brown, haven't they? So it's almost impossible to get a perfect white clover flower when you're picking it for medicine. What you usually do is you pick ones that aren't fully open. So then you don't get everything that you could from that fully mature flower. This is some of the reasons why the red clover uh, has usurped the white clover. If you want to use white clover and you have more of it, go right ahead. What I suggest is a few young people to help you pick. <laughs> Closer to the ground. Right? <laughs> They're much better for picking up things that are very close to the ground. And they enjoy it too. Children are thrilled to be asked to harvest flowers. <laughs> they will hardly ever say no to you about that. Okay, so we have clover. Over here I have a wild strawberry plant. Any wild strawberries over there? They have three leaves, Fragraria vesca. And I was reading about um, strawberries. I do a radio show uh, at healthylife.net. It's an hour show once a month. And uh, this year... The shows are devoted to the medicinal uses of fruits. I choose a, a different topic each year so that I'm always pushed to learn more and more and more. And I learned a lot of really fascinating things about strawberries, which of course is the fruit of June. <laughs> and in my area, the great peaceful nations have a strawberry moon festival in June. And it's the coming of age festival. Any young woman who has come into her menses between then and the last June, there's a special strawberry uh, um, ceremony for those young women. And they get things that, that have to do with strawberry. You know, when you look at that strawberry, I bet you've been told that the things on the outside of the strawberry are seeds, huh? You see those little things on the outside of the strawberry and people told you they were seeds? Well, that's what I always thought. But it turns out that they're actually the ripened ovary in each one breaks open and contains seeds. Wow. Now, I remember when my daughter was young, and she's 53 now, so that was 50 years ago. We would go out in the Catskills picking wild strawberries, and the wild strawberries were so thick on the ground that you got your feet, your knees, and your hands reddened while you were picking the others. You remember that, too. I have not seen that in a while, but if you go back and read the earliest records of white people writing about what they found when they got here, that's exactly what they found. And the reason in the Northeast that they found that was that the native people semi-cultivated the wild strawberries by burning an area. And then the wild strawberries would creep into that because they love the open and would completely cover it with strawberries, and then that would extend. And anytime they wanted a new strawberry patch, if, if trees started growing in the strawberry patch, they'd just burn it to the ground again. As a matter of fact, many native groups that I have been in say that they do not understand why white people let trees grow. <laughs> What's wrong with us that we let the trees, excuse me, those are supposed to be taken down. All right, because there's no food out there. You want food, you need to take the trees down. And so they did. All right. So there were, there were thousands and thousands. As a matter of fact, one writer said that his 
horse, his horse was red to the knees from strawberry juice from, from riding. And somebody said, well, strawberries are low to the ground. I said, yeah, but when that horse picks up his foot, it flicks back, right? So covering the horse with strawberry, a wonderful, wonderful fruit. All right, Fragraria, the fragrant plant, Fragraria vesca. Those little strawberries are so filled with flavor, aren't they? One of those tiny little strawberries, and they are tiny. Some of them are smaller than blueberries. They're real little, but there's more flavor in them than a big supermarket strawberry. Well, it turned out that there's another strawberry that grows on the West Coast, and it's really, really big, but it has hardly any flavor at all. And there was um, a botanist in the Netherlands, in Holland, who was really interested in the Rose family and was collecting any strawberry plants that could be found. And in his greenhouse, the Fra Fragraria vesca, the little wild strawberry, and the strawberry from California got together. Plants don't have sex, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and that is our modern strawberry. That's your modern strawberry. Now, the strawberry, unlike other fruits, does not ripen at all once it's picked. Right? You can pick other fruits. You pick a peach that's not quite ripe and you put it on the counter. It'll ripen. Strawberry will not. Once it's picked, the strawberry stops the ripening process and starts the molding process, as you know, right? <laughs> if you've ever bought strawberries. right? So if you buy a strawberry and it's white around the top, right, it has hardly any nutrition because, it was, because that means it's way too soon to pick that. It needs to be red all the way up to the top. Pointless to refrigerate them. Refrigeration removes many of the molecules of odor and taste. If you think strawberries taste not very good now, put them in the refrigerator and they will really taste like plastic. Uh, and you're not preserving them or saving them from anything. So you might as well just keep them out and stick them in the refrigerator. Hooray for the strawberry. Right. Generally easy for us to grow, because we don't grow thousands of strawberries, but very hard to cultivate strawberries. There are over 200 known diseases and pests that attack strawberries. So usually in commercial growing of strawberries, the earth is sprayed with a very heavy-duty fungicide, and then black plastic is laid over the oh, irrig black plastic irrigation pipe, then black plastic, then holes are punched in the black plastic and the strawberry plants are planted. This is organic cultivation, of course, except for the fungicide. Right. <laughs> Most people do not realize that all their organic produce is grown through black plastic. Yeah, not exactly what you had in mind when you say organic, right? So in commercial cultivation, not only is the ground first put, uh, have a fungicide on it, but they continue to use a variety of pesticides on the plants an individual strawberry has been found with the residues of 65 different agricultural chemicals, right? There's a list that comes out every year of the top 10 foods in terms of chemical contaminations, and you're familiar with that list? And strawberry has led the list for as long as I've been looking at it. 
However, it turns out that there are individual peaches that contain up to 70 different chemicals. So the peaches as a whole are actually, actually should be at the top of the list over strawberry. These are two fruits that it pays you to either grow yourself or to buy organic. Except they don't wash off very easy either. They're in the fruit. Yeah, They're in it. They're in it. You, it's, if you were a farmer, would you spray something on a plant that would wash off? Wouldn't make any sense. Farmers are not like wealthy, are they? Most farmers are pretty poor. Uh, I know, you know, years ago I said to a local farmer, I said, is this food organic? He said, oh no, don't worry, it's not organic. Don't worry. <laughs> because to him, organic meant in, riddled with insects. Right, and I said, oh, what chemicals do you use? And he looked at me, he said, I'm far too poor to buy any chemicals. Right. <laughs> Strawberry production commercially is that with both organic and non-organic sulfur, which is a mineral that strawberries do need, yeah. um, there's a correlation. You can take a map of asthma and a map of where strawberries are grown, and this is organic or regular, wow. because they're spraying the sulfur on because you need less, and that drift is causing asthmatic reaction problems with asthma. Wow, thank you. So that's Thanks for sharing that. I found out on a podcast recently. Yeah. So grow your own strawberries. They're, real, they're easy to grow at home, in, you know, in a small patch. They're really, I do not find them attacked by much at all. No, the deer. Robins. The deer. The deer. The deer. <laughs> the deer actually leave my strawberries alone because they're too busy eating green blueberries. <laughs> I have thousands of blueberry plants in my woods. Maybe I get two blueberries a year because I want them blue and the deer will eat them green. So <laughs> I never get to them. Exactly. Give me the idea of the nutrition in the strawberries. Say you grow yours and freeze them. Mm -hmm. Strawberries that are grown in soil with compost have two to four times more nutrients than even organic strawberries. And so the, they will pick up what they're growing in. But in general, fruit is not extremely nutritious. The two primary things that we're getting from fruit is fiber, which is sorely lacking in the American diet, right? And of course, antioxidants. And each fruit has a unique set of antioxidants, including some antioxidants that you've heard about, like the antioxidant in blueberries, which is associated with this color, right? Anthrocyanins. Alright, big complicated word, don't let it throw you, it just means f foods that have a dark coloration and the anthrocyanins are some of the most potent antioxidants known. Right. And so of course strawberries have them as well, as well as a variety of other, again, unique antioxidants. 17 unique antioxidants have been found in maple syrup. As a matter of fact, they use antioxidants that occur nowhere else. We've never seen them anywhere else except in maple syrup. Right. The, real, the real answer to your question, however, is that eaten raw, the strawberry has zero nutrition. Right. There is no nutrition of any kind in raw food. You seem to be disturbed by this idea. No, I... Oh, okay, I couldn't... You seem to be frowning. Okay, no, just the sun in your face. Okay. No, you actually were in a debate with... 
Brigitte Norris. Yeah. The raw versus cooked to bake. I to that one. I'm like, okay, you need to just stop talking to the other place. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Brigitte decided she was going to be a, a raw food guru. Uh -huh. And I did my best to talk her out of it, and I couldn't. And so um, I asked her to do two things with me. One, I asked her to eat a quart of yogurt every week. No matter what kind of raw food she was eating, just eat a quart of yogurt every week for your good friend Susan. And two, I said, let's make money off this and do a debate. So we hired a videographer and a video studio and a mediator, and we did the raw versus cook debate. And then when I saw the video, I wouldn't allow it to be sold because I love Brigitte. How does Brigitte look in that debate? So is that, is that... How does Brigitte look in that debate? Um, frustrated. Not very knowledgeable. She looks sick. She looks sick. Actually, look I at was her. In my bathtub, just listening. I wasn't looking at it. I was. She, look <laughs> you look at her. She re she really looks sick. And in fact, three years later, she was hospitalized near death. And the doctor said the only reason she was alive was because she'd been eating yogurt. What was her name? I don't know. Brigitte Mars, like the planet. Brigitte Mars. You can find it on YouTube. The raw versus cooked debate. And one of your radio shows with your daughter mm -hmm. you advise this lady I want you to go home and eat a I think you said a pound of butter in a in a month or something like in that in a week and I, I just laugh and I'm like oh, butter. Yeah, I, I, I love butter I love butter there was a, um, a person in Woodstock who was kind of frustrated because everybody in Woodstock of course is famous and they weren't and they thought well how do I get to be famous and they thought well I'm going to just go around and ask all the famous people for a recipe and then publish a book of the recipes of people of Woodstock in that style. And I get, I'll get famous. It was a great idea, and it was a great book. And so when the book came out, there was like a big book party, and um, the public was invited, and everybody who had contributed a recipe was allowed to vend whatever their thing was. Why, why were you famous? Well, my music or my books or my art or whatever. And so there was this all oh, big vendor area, and the woman right next to me at the table was vending her no-fat cookbooks. She had a whole line of no-fat. All right, and about half an hour into this, she leans over to me, pulls her shirt down, and says, do you have any remedy for, for dry skin? Look, my skin is coming off, right? Yeah, right, her skin is coming off. I, I said, and how's your hair? She says, falling out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, and your menses? She said, uh, kind of erratic. You think, right? And that's when I said, Rx, go out, buy a pound of organic butter, and eat it over the next week. Right? And she looked at me like I had said, go home and take a crap and eat that over the next week. Right? <laughs> and she later told me that she bought the pound of butter, but she left it in her refrigerator for two weeks. She could not bear to eat it. And then she finally started eating it, she said, and she apologizes humbly to everybody who bought any of her no-fat cookbooks because she was able to see immediate results in her skin and her hair, and she kept on eating fat, and her menses restored. So, dry your strawberries or cook your strawberries. Strawberry rhubarb cooked together, well, that's good. Nobody could object to that, right? No, no, wonderful, wonderful ways but to get them. Is that the same? You can freeze it, you can freeze it, you can dehydrate it, you can cook it, you can even ferment, you can even make lacto fermented strawberries. Right? Mm -hmm.
could probably cover it in oil, too. Yeah, that but wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> <laughs> you could, but I don't, I'm, I'm not, not so sure. But cream, there you go. Strawberries and cream. That's it. Cover in oil with cream. Oh, so glad that we have wisdom joined together here. Between us all, we will get this figured out. All right. So lots of ways to do that. What else? I see some grass. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, if we look, and we were to actually, like, count plants here, there would be more grass than any other plant growing here, wouldn't there? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then the second most common plant here would be the clover. And the seeds of grasses are grains. Every grass seed is edible. There are no poisonous grass seeds. Humans have been eating grains for as long as there have been humans, Mr. Paleo is just dead wrong. We have found remnants of oatmeal in a pot used 350,000 years ago. All humans eat grass seeds and we have always eaten grass seeds because they're abundant and easy to get. All right. And then it's not a complete protein. What do we add to it to make it a complete protein? Beans. Look at what the two most common plants are right here. Grains and beans, huh? Grass and clover. So, so the, the, the earth offers us that grains and beans combination. Is wild rice a complete protein? I always thought it was. It's not a complete protein. It doesn't contain all the essential amino acids that you need, right? And, of course, uh, the woman who wrote Diet for a Small Planet also has egg on her face uh, because proteins, the um, amino acids, which are proteins, circulate in your body for up to five days after you eat them. So the idea that you have to eat, you know, X amount of beans with X amount of grains in order to make a complete protein and eat them at the same meal. That was a lot of rubbish. That's a lot of rubbish, exactly. <laughs> that is really a lot. And you notice it didn't go very far either <laughs> because it's a lot of rubbish. <laughs> No, make sure that at some point you eat beans if you're eating grains. Right? So within the same four or five day period and you, you will be okay. Because, you know, our ancestors were certainly not there saying, okay, I'm sorry, you've eaten your quota of beans for the amount of, of wild rice you have. <laughs> no. Any other plant that you're seeing here that you want to talk about before we uh, continue on? Oh, tiny little plant. Now look at, can you see that flower? Does the flower look like this? <laughs> Does it have four petals? Two sticking out the sides. Is it white? Right? And then it does? So it's got one petal hanging down, two out here, and then one at the top. Yes? That's Speedwell. Veronica. All right, this is not the Veronica. Sure. This is not Veronica officinalis, which is a slightly bigger plant. Yep, speedwell. This is time-leaved speedwell. Aptly named. Look, it looks just like time, time-leaved speedwell, right? right? So there is a official medicinal speedwell. It's hardly ever used in American herbalism. Widely used in European herbalism. And the Veronicas, of course, have been cultivated to have flowers this big. 
right? <laughs> it's pretty, the, the easiest things to do when we cultivate a plant are to bump up the size of it and to change the color. Those genes are very uh, available to us. And women have been genetically modifying plants since the beginning of time. Right. Surely you don't think that there's a wild plant that looks like broccoli, do you? <laughs> that wonderful corn that we're going to soon start eating, the zea maize, right? Its ancestor is teosinte, which like all smart grasses, ripens its seeds over a period of two weeks. So the teosinte is about this big. It has about 10 kernels, and they ripen about two days apart. Imagine trying to eat an ear of corn, right, in which only every 10th one was ripe. <laughs> you can see why we convinced the grasses to ripen all of their seeds at once, despite the fact that it's really not ideal for the grass itself. So women genetically modified teosinte so that we have our modern zea maize, the wonderful sweet corn that did we all like. They did it by genetic modification. That thing up there that we call the sun produces hard radiation, which changes the genes of plants. And people who are very much into plants see which ones have had genetic modifications done by the sun and choose that, right? Uh, George Washington Carver was such a person, right? He would, you know, he could go through a peanut field and go, that one, and that one, and, you know, get the seeds from those and plant another field with those. Uh, <clears throat> but that's still genetic modification because we are modifying the genes. Hey, I know, women, do things slow and sneaky. And somehow that seems nicer to us or more reasonable to us than fast and blatant, which is how we're doing genetic modification now, fast and blatant. We don't have the time that George Washington Carver did because when George Washington Carver was alive, how many people lived on this planet? Not many. About a billion. When I, by the time I was born, there were two billion. Now, eight billion, gang. There's eight billion people on this planet that we need and want to feed. We can no longer do slow and sneaky. Now we do fast and blatant, but there's no real difference. There was a panel that uh, included people from all over the world, uh, the people who are really experts in all of this, and they sat for two years and looked at every study that has been done on genetically modified organisms. And um, a, one study that really had a very Im big impact on me, which was a study, you know, um, Americans have been eating genetically modified foods for over 35 years. What was the first genetically modified food put on the market? Canola oil. I do not think there's any genetically modified wheat. Certainly not on the market. There might be experiments, but I don't think there's any for sale. There is genetically modified corn and genetically modified soy. But canola oil, which is highly recommended by people who are into health, is a genetically modified food. So Americans have been eating genetically modified foods as a part of their diet. And almost every American, right? 
Even people who are, who are eating healthily will eat canola oil. Right? So Amer Americans have been eating genetically modified foods for 35 years. There are no genetically modified foods in the food supply in England at all. Zero zilch, none. They took a list of 100 diseases and they compared the frequency and severity of those diseases in the United States to the frequency and severity of those diseases in England and there is no difference. There is not any of the hundred top diseases that in any way is influenced by eating genetically modified organisms. Right? Are they causing super weeds? No, they're not. Right? Is Roundup the best stuff in the world? No, it's not. But you know what? It's a lot, lot, lot better than the herbicides it replaced. Now, hey, I don't use herbicides at all in my garden. On the other hand, I'm not growing food for 8 billion people. Right? <laughs> so I don't have to grow a lot of it. But I do want those 8 billion people fed, and so I understand what's going on, and I support what's going on. I personally probably eat from the top one-tenth of one percent of the food chain because I keep a herd of dairy goats, I make all my own cheese, I make all my own yogurt. If I'm eating meat, probably my friends have raised it. I'm a member of an organic CSA. I mean, whoa. But I understand that the eight billion people on this planet don't have those choices. Many of them feel blessed if they get more than two bowls of rice a day. They get a little pickled vegetable with the rice. Celebrate! There's a lot of people on this planet who have very, very little to eat. Right. And I want them fed. I don't want to see children go to bed hungry. I don't think any of us want to see children go to bed hungry. Wow. What a great... With that Agent Orange kind of stuff by me, the Amtrak... By the Amtrak yeah, trails, yeah. Yeah, hazmat suits and spray it. More and more communities are convincing um, the, the powers that be that goats are a better solution. Somebody just said, look what they're doing in Riverside Park in Manhattan, right? People were so upset about their spraying in Riverside Park that they convinced them to have goats. There's now a herd of goats in Riverside Park chewing down the unwanted plants, all right? So that's one way to do it. You find out who has authorized that and say, we want goats, right? And there are herds of goats available for rent that will come and get rid of the unwanted vegetation. They're very good at it. Right? <laughs> if you've ever been around goats, you know they're very, very, very good at it indeed. Right? Okay, I think we've said hello to everybody here, yes? What about the moss? The moss. Moss! Oh, thank you. How wonderful. Hi, moss. Yes, a non-flowering plant. All the other plants we were looking at are flowering plants. But the moss is a non-flowering plant. And over here on the trees is some lichen, which is also a non-flowering plant. And as we walk around, we'll see the ferns unfolding. And those are non-flowering plants. And then later on in the fall, there's going to be a whole mushroom conference. And those are non-flowering plants. All right. Herbalists tend to use flowering plants a lot, lot more than we use non-flowering plants. I spent a year with the ferns. New York State is a fern destination. We have so many ferns, and especially the Catskills. I have over 100 springs on, on my land, so we're, we're pretty 
wet area and the ferns love that kind of stuff and I learned all, you know everything I could about them and I was able to you know identify every fern and um, at the end of that year I said okay ferns I think I got you I think I really understand now what should I tell people about you and they said tell people to leave us alone <laughs> they said the time for using us is past we no longer want to be used there are other um, other tasks that now lie before us and we do not want to be uh, eaten at all or used in medicine in any way. And in New Zealand, I was told that when the um, Maori arrived in New Zealand, you know the Maori are not native to New Zealand. You know that, right? The native people were the, the Moriori. And the Maori exterminated them. I mean, literally exterminated them, drove them all onto an island and burned the island down. Um, so when people say, well, isn't, it's unfair that the white people took New Zealand away from the Maori, uh, we say, how about the Maori took it away from the Moriori? So, you know, the strongest person wins here. <laughs> we only did what they did. And so they, arriving in New Zealand, had knew the flora and flora of the Pacific Islands, but New Zealand is a whole other situation. It's a little piece out of time because it broke off, and this is flora and fauna, this quite ancient there. And they didn't recognize any of the plants except for the ferns. And so they ate the ferns, and two things happened. One, ferns do contain carcinogenic chemicals, and they're pretty strong carcinogenic chemicals. If you eat, you know, fiddleheads once a year, you're probably okay. But more than that, you're probably not okay. And so a great many of them died of cancer, and ferns contain um, very... Um, abrasive substances and it wore their teeth down to the gum line from eating the ferns. So um, thank you ferns for letting us know about that. Mosses, the only part of moss that I know that's ever been used medicinally is if you watch the moss it will come up and it will have a little stalk and on top of that like a little capsule and if you squeeze that inside of that are spores, little spores. And those spores are styptic, they stop bleeding. The children love this, and I've seen children use this remedy over and over, but I've never seen an adult use it, because adults know that plantain and yarrow work too. They're easier to find, and they're usually right underfoot. They're both styptic as well. All right. Anything else that we need to say hi to? What's that? This one right there, that tall one. Well, you know, since I don't live here, I'm not exactly sure. If I was at home, I would say it's going to be a fall-blooming aster. Okay. So that would be my guess, but it's only a guess. Okay. All right. Since I haven't ever seen that plant in bloom, I can't know what it is until I see it in bloom. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Oh, that's where you're nesting. Right, because we've been we we've been seeing it when we were inside there. We've been seeing it flying up and down, up and oh, there's two nests. You've got two nests. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. That is wonderful. <laughs> All right. So, with a very great thank you to the plants and to the earth, let's begin. <laughs>
And as you know, class with me always begins with talking stick. And uh, gee, let's use uh, the nettle infusion as our talking stick today. <laughs> and uh, talking stick starts with a song and it ends with a prayer. And in between, the rule is that only the person that has the talking stick can talk, but the person who has the talking stick can say anything they want. If the person who has the talking stick actually asks a question, you're not allowed to answer it because only the person with the talking stick can talk. So it's, it's better if you don't ask a direct question because then we're all going, mm. Also, if this is already making you nervous and you're thinking, oh, I hate to speak in public. An eight-year-old said, talking stick, I think I'd call it the listening stick. Look at how much more you're gonna have to listen than talk. Be assured, when the magic of the talking stick gets to you, you'll know what to say. If you don't know what to say, tell us your name. Tell us where you live, tell us where your heart lives. Tell us anything you want. Sing a song. Tell us we have to get up and dance. When you got the talking stick, you are in charge. <laughs> Sacred corn mother, come to me. Make my way sacred. Fill me with beauty. Can you understand those words? Sacred corn mother, come to me. Make my way sacred. Fill me with beauty. I would like everybody to sing. It's not a contest. You don't have to sing on key. Secret corn mother, come to me. <coughs> Make my way sacred. Fill me with beauty. Now, in case she didn't hear, we're going to say fill me with beauty again several times. Fill me with beauty. Fill me with beauty, fill me with beauty. Why? So I can bring others beauty. So I may bring others beauty. Secret corn mother, come to me. Make my way sacred, fill me with beauty. Secret Lord Mother, come to me. Make my way sacred, fill me with beauty. Fill me with beauty. Fill me with beauty. Fill me with beauty. That I may bring others beauty. And I'll start the talking stick by honoring the oak tree that we are sitting under. The lore in my area, which can have frost in May, is that once the oak tree has started putting out leaves, it's safe to plant your corn because the oak won't put out leaves until all danger of frost is passed. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Christy K. Pataprin and Lena May Moon. Um, my heart is in Michigan along the Lake Michigan shores, and I love being in circle with all women and Susan Weed, and I'm just really excited again to be here. <laughs> um, good morning, my name is Shan. Uh, I also attended uh, the, the immersion 
with Susan, so we've done a few talking circles so far this week, um, which has been wonderful and an enjoyment to hear everyone's story. Um, so I look forward to hearing, although it's a, a snippet of everyone's story this morning, um, a little bit more about them and their vibe as we kind of enter into the rest of the weekend and all the excitement that is to come. Thank you. Look forward to it. Hi, I'm Christine Mullenfire, <laughs> and uh, glad to be here for yet another one. You know, fighting the cold, has taken tinctures, and they seem to have been like attacking my kidney. So I was like, oh yeah, you need to stop all the tinctures right now. And it's getting better. It's not stabbing me with a knife when I move. So. <laughs> But now I'm coughing worse, but it's still expectorating. Stuff's still coming up, so I'm doing okay, good. Great. So if you see me coughing, just sort of ignore me. I'm gonna get a cough drop in my mouth, and I'll be, I'll be better. And I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's nice to be outside and feel the sun. Even if I did sort of have a little hissy fit because change was happening inside, and I was prepared. <laughs> but I'm just glad to be here. I'm Deanne, um, also known as Phoenix, and I was here for the three-day. Um, <coughs> it's so nice outside. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Catherine Ann Elizabeth, and I'm feeling a lot of gratitude to be here, and I'm also feeling the just the power of we're doing talking stick now and women are introducing themselves and you might just want to cut out this part of the tape because it's kind of I don't want to repeat everything thank you share a little snippet of that as I was having a conversation with the woman earlier about mushrooms and to to get my things I found a morel she found a morel we're excited a lot of moments like that have been happening or I was sending out prayers the last full moon about being in my power and someone voice that they witnessed me doing that so I'm going to be introducing themselves and telling us where they live as well as other things I'm Ursula um, I am really excited for the sun to start showing itself a lot more <laughs> And we're talking about how much we enjoy being outside and how nice the sun is. I'm Annie. I'm just happy to be here. Long week getting all kinds of work crammed in to get here for today. Mm -hmm. It's nice to be in a group of women and a bigger group of women coming in and hearing what you have to say without interrupting. <laughs> our joy and our gratitude is being expressed. I am from western Minnesota. Thank you, Susan. I discovered you in January, and I have been drinking the infusions. Um, and I've, I've always been really healthy, and have eaten healthy, but I don't think I've ever felt better. And now I got all my sisters and nieces drinking it. And, I just love them. Mm -hmm. But um, I have 
been working as a nurse um, in a hospital for 24 years. Um, I was a nurse for maybe a month when I realized that it wasn't about making people healthier well. So I have been since like trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> Most nurses I work with are thinking about retiring and I'm like, I still have to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and in January I figured it out and um, because my boss gave me a sheet that wanted me to uh, write, you know, what my goals were. And I don't think the intention was goals outside the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> but I wrote, I'm going to be a herbalist, and I'm going to keep people out of this effing place. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is my intro into... Um, Nurse with 24 years experience. Has just told us she's going to be an herbalist when she grows up. Making everyone else healthy around me. Because hospitals are not places for help. Uh, my name's Parney, and I live in Appleton, Wisconsin, and I'm grateful to be here. Gratitude, gratitude. My name is Mary, and um, I am so thankful to be here, and I'm so thankful to be in your presence. Um, Everyone that I know has a copy of your new menopausal years. <laughs> magic, truly. Um, magical. And um, um, I'm here. I, I'm embarking on a new path in my life. And I'm here to just feel the presence. Feel the nature. I'm at camp with a bunch of <laughs> <laughs> An older woman saying, I'm starting a new path in my life, and look at that, I'm at camp. There are many pretty trees all around the world. Many pretty trees all around the world. Many pretty trees all around the world. Here's a pretty tree now. And um, so if you find me that I've tripped, because I'm always looking up at the trees, please <laughs> help me out. <laughs> There are many pretty trees around the world. Hi, I'm Holly, and I just want to thank you, Susan, for the three days that we had together. I know I have so much more to learn. I just want to listen, and I'll ask you some questions. Hi, I'm Linda from Chicago, and uh, it's my second year, and still very new, all the things to learn about herbalism, but I'm getting into gardening at home and doing all different herbs and plants and just thought it kind of fit together. So I decided to come again. <laughs> I enjoy it very much. Growing herbs, growing gardens, it's wonderful. Oh, my name is Helen Hazel Mayer. And you can call me Helen, you can call me Hazel. <laughs> I, I have geographical names. Um, I live in Madison, have for 20 years. My heart lives in the ocean. Mm. Uh, sometimes my heart vacations to the mountains, sometimes <laughs> it vacations to out west. Um, lots of people had dolls when they grew up. My first one was uh, a medicine woman doll. That was my first gift. And... Um, it is always good to be in circle 
no matter what kind of circle it is. Um, it it seems to be a decime. It seems to be uh, returning to old ways everywhere, everywhere. Because I I lead circles at home um, on death and dying and grief, and um, some of the best truth, the best conversations, and that came out of working in Western medicine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's got to be a way to practice medicine that doesn't kill me, because you know, it's just designed to carry up. And since I'm the last one holding the talking stick nettle, can we take a few seconds to be quiet and listen to the women laughing in the tent, to us being here just a little bit? listening to sounds that this microphone cannot pick up in silence. Blessings to you all for being here. Thank you. Alright, now I'm going to pass the stocking stick around a couple more times. And I have specific questions for you. I would like you to tell me how long you've been using herbs as medicine. I started out using herbs as seasoning for food, many of us do. Um, I'd like to know how long you've been using herbs as medicine, and I've been using herbs for medicine for um, about 52 or 3 years. I've been using herbs as medicine consistently since uh, 2015 and drinking uh, nourishing herbal infusions for the past two years. Daily. Uh, consistent enjoying um, the herbs in a nourishment uh, way uh, for the last year uh, after starting with Linda Conroy's class. Um, but I have to I have to always think back to think back to some of those other situations in life when you know you you picked a piece of grass because it fit perfectly between your teeth and you had something stuck. <laughs> so you know some of those kinds of things and I grew up in the middle of 40 acres so you know, you were just kind of always around, and yeah, if it ended up in your mouth, <laughs> so, yeah, you know what tasted good and what didn't, so I don't know, uh, my mom didn't seem to have a problem with it, or she used toilet paper as she did, that was what you did in the middle of 40 acres, so, um, so, but in the last year, I guess to talk about the question. Since 1973, and I had to do the math, 46 years almost. Mm-hmm. Two years. 
years, seven years. Um, not quite sure. I, my father was introducing, like, using plants as medicine when I was a kid, but I think on my own, probably more so since 2016. So. Oh, maybe since she was a child, like maybe three years. interesting question because I never thought about it in terms of over a lifetime but I have to say from <coughs> early childhood so probably about 50 years um, picking dandelion flowers for wine for my mother <laughs> one of the first and then she picked dandelion flowers for wine for her mother plantain she's a child and Oh, the dandelion juice award. Um, used the dandelion sap for more ever since she was a child. So. It is a tough question. Many, many years. I think I, I, think I came out of the womb um, health-minded. I drove my poor mother nuts because I was always telling her, Mom, we can't eat that. we got to eat this. And, um, and eventually she came around. But... As medicine, I think I've eaten it for wellness because I've never been sick, so it must be working. <laughs> 20 years. 20 years uh, since child. Well, as many as I did, um, my grandmother. My grandmother. Lots of things. Would use plants to cure things. Um, so, since you know, 63 years. And, um, so that's 63 years. But on my own, probably 25, 30 years. 25, 30 years on her own. Just since December, intentionally doing infusions. Hmm. But I would say, intuitively, probably hmm. a long, longer than that. Hmm. I feel I need to bring up the idea that. I've known the herbs have been medicine. I've been maybe two or three years old, but have I been using them? Mm. That is a different thing. I haven't been using the tools that I know are available. So, I'm so she's talking about knowing about herbal medicine and even having herbal medicine but not using it. Next question. Have you ever used herbal medicine when you were taking a drug? Or have you ever known somebody who used herbal medicine when they were taking a drug? Or for those who've been doing this for a while, have you ever recommended that somebody use herbal medicine while they're taking a drug? And that, this of course be, draws us into the heart of our discussion here this morning. Um, <clears throat> and of course, you know, we are told that you should not combine drugs and herbs. And you go to any, you know, medical doctor, um, they'll say, what, what drugs are you taking? Include any herbal supplements you're taking as though herbs were drugs. So one of the things that we're going to do in our session today is to distinguish between an herb and a drug. We're going to talk about how we can turn an herb into a drug because we need to understand these things so that we can understand whether or not herbs and drugs can work together or whether they should not be combined, which is, I 
think what we're mostly interested in here, right? Is it dangerous to combine herbs with drugs? This is the, the common idea, is that herbs being drugs shouldn't be combined with drugs because you don't know how they will interact. My experience over at least half of the time I've been using herbs and herbal medicine is that um, I have recommended um, or encouraged uh, thousands of people who are taking drugs to take herbs. And that's across a wide spectrum of different kinds of drugs that they're taking. Birth control. Plus herbs. Plus herbs. Plus herbs. Okay. For how long? Uh, two years. I want to clarify the question. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's talk about, in the talking stick circle here, your use of herbs and drugs together, or if not you, people that you are in close contact with. So you actually, these two questions are helping us to create the ground that our discussion will rise up out of. Yes? Uh, yes, I personally take in drugs as well as herbs, but usually on the nourishing side. So. <laughs> Taking antibiotics and herbs. So, with my father, he had hepatitis, so he liver disease. My father has hepatitis. He hepatitis. Very hesitant for taking a drug that, like, taken together, would have probably killed him. Also, once um, recommended for him, and the doctor's like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Well, not taking it." It's Tai Chi teacher. Recommended herbs. He stopped taking these drugs. And the doctor wanted to know what he was doing and why he was better. He eventually ended up dying, but not due to that. He lived, he lived longer, I think, because of the herbal. He did die from the hepatitis, but the herbs prolonged his life. Quite a lot of herbs with medication. Quite a lot of herbs with medication. I have asthma, had it since childhood. And I've used a lot of herbs for support and, and health, vascular health, all of that. Um, but I've relied on the drugs to, at times, keep me alive. So I'm grateful that they are there. She's grateful um, for her drugs. She's asthmatic since childhood, but she deserves to. From taking. And I think overall, I have improved. I would have to say was very willing to help wean me off of the asthma medications mm -hmm. that I had been on for probably 30 years. And he was just happy to help me with so yeah. my experience. Okay, less drugs, more herbs. Um, I have taken drugs, but um, working in the healthcare field, I always recommend that everybody put on antibiotics to do probiotics. Encourage them to listen to Michael Stamets talk. I get off of her time right goes by using her. Yeah, 
or something like that. That's for a year. It's been 10 years she hasn't been addressed for two years. <laughs> okay, great question. Thank you. I am currently taking doxycycline for a tick bite, um, and I it specifically says do not take or yogurt. It specifically says that high minerals. I have been taking my infusions in a, not two hours. A mother who is 93 has always been in great health. According to two years ago, she had Graves' disease, so she had her thyroid. You know how it disappears when you drink that uh, whatever you drink. It, so she doesn't have. So she has been on thyroid meds, um, and she is over the past year. Her memory and everything has been going down. So she's wondering what herbs she can use can her help her. Friends with an epileptic um, child, but the parents are moving to Colorado and California, where they can get cannabis products, which totally eliminate childhood epilepsy. <laughs> what we are doing is traditional medicine. What MDs are doing is not traditional. It might be orthodox medicine, but in no way can it be called traditional medicine, which some of you call it. Herbalism is Western medicine. I think modern medicine, orthodox medicine, or scientific medicine are more accurate terms. What we are doing is Western medicine. We can't just say, oh, they do Western medicine. What does that leave us with? Hands <laughs> for a moment. And I invite you to sink into the earth. Feel the presence of the earth underneath you. Allow yourself to sink down into the earth until you begin, or until you continue to feel the heartbeat of the earth. Let the heartbeat of the earth move up into your belly. And then bring it to your heart. Breathe out and give your breath away to all of these green plants. Give away your gratitude. And breathe in, breathing in the abundance and the joy of the green nations as they give away to you. Every breath is a giveaway dance from that first breath you took when you were born to the last breath you exhale as you die. Every breath connects you to the planet. Your heart synchronized to the earth's heart. Your heart Expanded into the green. Allow a word or a sound to move into your consciousness. And we'll go around our circle in a clockwise direction, each offering our word or our sound. Robin. Hmm. 
sign. Breathing out, ha, give all those words away and then take from the entire universe into yourself with your hands, bring in health, wholeness, and holiness, everything you need. You bring up an interesting thing with the two hours between. Holly, I have heard other people say that too. Well, it's safe to take herbs if you take them at least two hours after the drug. I can make no sense of that at all. If I have taken a drug, that drug is designed to last until I take the next dose. It's designed to be active in my body until I... So if you're taking an antibiotic, and you're taking that antibiotic how frequently? Twice a day. day. So it is designed to be active in your body for 12 hours. So I'm not really sure what waiting two hours does. Okay. Can anybody... Does anybody have any... Information on this? Am I missing something here? Well, it, on the directions, it says do not eat food for, um, you know, an hour before or two hours after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess that made me think that my infusion for my food, so I was going to do that. Two hours, right. Again, I'm not sh- even sure why they say don't eat food. Okay. Right, because, again, I can't find any physiological reason for that. It might be, in the terms of an antibiotic, that they don't want you actively digesting anything, but the infusions are pre-digested. This is already digested food. So it's not going to activate your digestion. So while it is your food, it is different than eating. Because when you eat, you're eating things that must be acted on by the stomach and that will remain in your stomach for up to four hours. So if you eat and then you take your antibiotic, I think that what they're thinking is the antibiotic won't get in your bloodstream because it'll be trapped in your stomach. All right, with that food, until that food is digested and then put into the small intestine. And so they want you just taking the antibiotic and the antibiotic going right through and into the small intestine. Now, what form is that antibiotic? Pill. It's in a pill. Okay. Most drugs are in pills or capsules. Why are drugs in pills and capsules? <laughs> what? <laughs> to, to prevent you from tasting the fact that they're poisonous. Yeah. Chew on an aspirin. Woo! You like the taste of aspirin. Baby aspirin or real aspirin? Real aspirin. Well, that's bitter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right. But but the first reason is that the more noxious something is, the more likely we are to put it in a capsule or a tablet so that we can simply swallow it without tasting it. All right. And as uh, the heroic herbalists, the group of herbalists in the United States, 150 years ago or so, who had learned from native people, 
um, used more and more noxious and bitter plants, they, it became more standard in herbalism to grind those plants to a powder and put them into a capsule in order to get people to take them because they're just too nasty to take. Otherwise, similarly, in other areas of the world, herbs that have very bad taste are mixed with um, fats and other things and rolled into pills that you can then, again, take right, so that you don't taste it. So that's one of the reasons is poisons taste bad and your mouth in and of its own will usually go patooey and spit out a poison. And we want to be poisoned. So we're going to see if we can get it past things. The other thing is that once we have any substance in our body, our body is going to work to either utilize it or get rid of it. Like, there's two basic choices, right? You use it and you become, it becomes part of you or you get rid of it. When we actually eat food, when we actually put food into our mouth and chew it, a variety of different things happen. There, is, there are enzymes in our saliva which begin acting on the food right there. One of the primary enzymes in saliva is ptylin, and ptylin digests carbohydrate. Linda was asking about the person dying from the poke root. So if you take a fresh, raw poke root, and you put it in your mouth and chew it, it will taste very, very sweet. But if you keep chewing it, the ptylin will digest that sweet out, that carbohydrate out, and then you will taste the poisons in it. In fact, ptylin and its ability to digest carbohydrate out of plants that have poisons is so important that there are no human beings left who don't have ptylin in their saliva. It wasn't a given. There were humans who didn't have that, and they probably died by eating poisonous things. In cultures which eat primarily grain, and we call these rice cultures because it's the primary grain that is eaten in many of these cultures, the levels of ptylin are much, much higher than yours. And that is genetically based through generations of eating diets that are deeply grain-based. I don't mean let's have some grain. I mean your diet is grain and you get a little something else with it. All right. I went into a supermarket in Japan and there were two supermarket aisles, both sides, selling things to put on your rice. Little sprinkles. Gamazio is just the beginning. Right? Can you imagine? Uh, but this is what a rice culture does, right? It has wonderful little things to put on your rice. This requires a high amount of ptylin to protect you. So we begin this process right in the mouth when we're eating. If you would swallow and notice what your tongue does. Swallowing is a very complex thing. A stroke can make you forget how to swallow. When you get deep into Alzheimer's, you forget how to swallow. 
Right. So what happens to your tongue when you swallow? You feel it pressing up against the soft palate. You go home and you stick your fingers in your mouth. And the first part of your palate up here is called the hard palate, but behind it is the soft palate. Now, the entire digestive system from your mouth right on through to your anus is lined with mucus-producing cells. Right? Your mouth stays moist. Your entire digestive system stays moist because you have these mucus-producing cells. And they, it, they are replaced every 24 hours, which is why digestion is so uh, interfered with with chemotherapy because we don't have any chemotherapy that kills cancer cells. So what chemotherapy does, chemotherapy kills rapidly reproducing cells. Now cancer cells are rapidly reproducing cells, but so are the cells lining your digestive tract, as well as your hair follicles. So any rapidly reproducing cell is going to be destroyed by chemotherapeutic agents because that is what they do. So this Mucus layer in your mouth and through your entire digestive system, which is replaced every 24 hours, is underlaid by lymphatic tissue. The entire digestive system can be considered to be part of the immune system. And lymphatic tissue interlaces throughout the surfaces of the digestive system because that digestive system is one of the places where outside contacts inside. The immune system's task is to differentiate between what is you and what isn't you. When the immune system sees something that is you, it says, how wonderful. When the immune system sees something that isn't you, it says, attack, kill. This is what happens in an autoimmune disease. The immune system makes a mistake. It looks at you and it says attack, kill. And it attacks and kills your pancreas, right? If you have type 1 diabetes or a variety of other tissues. We're actually kind of getting into how this happens. Um, we had a horrible thing that allowed us to understand this better. There was one restaurant in a town that served some food that gave food poisoning to over 300 people. And it was a very bad food poisoning. Some of them were hospitalized. Nobody died, but it was pretty bad food poisoning. And so we had this, we would not, as a scientific experiment, right, give food poisoning to 300 people, but we had this group. And so we were able to follow them. And a astonishing number of them went on to have autoimmune problems. And what we were beginning to realize is the immune system doesn't just do this out of nowhere. The immune system actively attacks something like food poisoning, and that food poisoning has pieces that look the same to the immune system as things that are in your body. So if that food poisoning has something that looks like a cell in your intestines, then when the immune system has killed the food poisoning, it goes on to continue by killing cells in your intestines. So it's not really that the immune system is running amok. The immune system has simply made a mistake. And this can happen in any part of the body depending on 
what particular thing has been taken in that the immune system reacted to and what it looks like and what it might then go on to do. So, wow, a whole lot going on there when we're actually eating food and it's going into our bodies and because we don't want to be poisoned and because we want to digest the food, the lymphatic tissue in your mouth takes little samples of whatever it is that you're eating, actually molecules of that, and sweeps them down to your liver and your pancreas while you're chewing. While you're chewing the food, your lymphatic tissue is already taking molecules and atoms of that food through the lymphatic tissues to the liver and the pancreas, which then start making the enzymes that will digest that food. And it takes them about four hours to do that. And your food is in your stomach about four hours. Now, if you drink your infusion cold, ice cold, it clears the stomach in five minutes. <clears throat> Iced beverages go immediately into circulation. When you're really hot and thirsty, you want a cup of hot tea? No, you want an iced beverage because your body knows that's what's going to hydrate you fast. A hot beverage like soup or a hot cup of tea can take two to four hours to get into circulation because it will linger in the stomach. It will not just move through in the same way. So you want to take your infusion with your antibiotic, just make sure that infusion is super cold. Okay, now let us imagine what doesn't happen when we take herbs or drugs and put them in tablets or capsules. You don't taste them. Well, it will reach your stomach before that. The pancreas and the liver has time to process that information through the lymphatic. It didn't get any information. Right. It hasn't. Your, your pancreas and your liver have. And we want that. Because what will the pancreas and the liver do to the drug? They would destroy it. That's the point of digestive enzymes, right? So if you actually chewed up the drug, then by the time it got into the small intestine, it would have a very difficult time getting into the bloodstream because you would have created the enzymes that will destroy that drug. That's why a lot of them too is done. You're not supposed to crush them. Exactly. Don't crush it. <laughs> Keep it as a tablet or a capsule because we, we want to bypass your body's ability to distinguish and get rid of poisons, both in your mouth and in your digestive system. We don't want that happening. We're poisoning you and we want you to be poisoned, okay? And you want to be poisoned in that particular way. You want to be poisoned by an antibiotic, right? You got uh, some evidence that you needed to take an antibiotic from your tick bite? Well, I was throwing up. I had a high fever. Uh-huh. That seems reasonable. Okay. I wasn't feeling very good. So you weren't, you were not, you're not taking an antibiotic because of a tick bite. Uh, no. That's a very uh, misleading no, statement. You're oh, taking no. antibiotic because you had a severe physical reaction to a tick bite. Right. Okay. I want to be clear because I don't want people thinking that if you 
are bitten by a tick, you should take an antibiotic, oh, yeah. which is which is currently being passed around. That any time yeah. you take a tick off your body, you should take an antibiotic. And, uh, and I do not uh, I do not go with that at all. And my doctor, and where we live, if a tick is on you for 24 hours, it's still probably even if it bites you, it's probably not going to be a problem. Probably not. The Center for Disease Control says that it will take at least 24, if not 48 hours, for the Lyme organism to enter your body. Because let's look at what actually has to happen, okay? The Lyme organism is in the tick's body in an insisted form. It's in the tick's gut, insisted. The tick finds something with blood to bite. What? What does insisted It's in um, a case. Okay, it's in a cyst. It has a covering over it. It's not just floating around. It's packaged. Okay, so the tick finds a host and consumes that host's blood. And what happens as it consumes that blood is that that blood goes into its digestive system where the insisted Lyme organism is. Once that digestive system gets the blood, the Lyme organism comes out of its package. Is it the blood that releases it, or is it, it's, does it cause it to burst? We're not exactly sure. Good question. But we know that once that tick gets a blood meal, now the Lyme organism is activated, and the Lyme organism samples the blood and changes its DNA to match the blood of whatever the host of the tick is. You can eliminate every mouse in the world will still have Lyme disease. You can eliminate every deer in the world. We will still have Lyme disease. Lyme disease can mimic any DNA. So is that the same like... It's very powerful. Does ehrlichiosis work the same way? No. Okay. No. This is Lyme disease. Ehrlichiosis you can get within the first hour of the tick being on you. Oh, okay. Because it's already active. Okay. Right, but the Lyme isn't, right? Oh, and we don't have Lyme so much in our area. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. So, um, th this does not happen instantly. The tick has to be feeding from you enough to get enough blood into its digestive system. This doesn't happen immediately. That Lyme organism has to awaken. It has to change its DNA. Then it has to start replicating. Again, this takes time. This actually takes time. And the Lyme disease organism replicates to the point where it spills out of the digestive system and gets into the salivary glands. Deer ticks do not suck your blood. They lick your blood. A dog tick will push its head into you and will stick out a thing and will suck up your blood. The deer tick glues itself to your body, chews a hole in your body, and then extends an organ that licks up your blood. <laughs> we have all licked. Do you drool? So does the tick. So as this happens and the tick is continuing to feed, it drools into you and this is how you get Lyme disease. Their lichiosis, because it's already present in the tick, can be passed from the tick directly to you because it is 
does not have the requirements that the Lyme disease does. All right. I'm in Australia, walking around barefoot, and people are freaking out. Oh, we have snakes, horribly poisonous snakes. You're going to die from a snake bite. I'm like, you know what? Poisonous snakes don't like to bite things a lot bigger than they are, and they don't like to bite things they can't eat. It's a real waste. It takes a lot to make snake venom. All right, and they're not like going to dash out of the, the gum grove and come and bite me just because they see bare feet. <laughs> <laughs> So calm down, everybody, about my going barefoot here, right? And then just kind of, and I mean, people were really, really on me and trying to terrify me about this, right? And then just kind of casually, somebody mentions that ticks in Australia carry a disease that you can get in the first five minutes of the tick biting you, which paralyzes you. And I said, why aren't you frightening me about this? <laughs> now, this is some serious stuff here, right? <laughs> It turns out it can only paralyze you if you're fairly small. So small dogs do die from being bitten by these ticks. And they don't stay on your body so that you can even see them. They kind of fall down from the trees, bite you, give you this paralysis disease, and then fall off. Wow. wow. I'm like, you know, snakes? At least I can see a snake. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this other stuff. Ooh. So I will, while we're talking about this, I will say, that the U.S. Army has found that tincture of flowering yarrow or tincture of flowering catnip is as effective as D-E-E-T in repelling all biting insects, including ticks. Tincture of the flowering top of Echelia millifolium, commonly known as yarrow. Tincture of the flowering top of Nepetacateria, commonly known as catnip is as effective as D-E-E-T. Now, D-E-E-T is put into an oil base, and so it will linger on your skin for hours. There is a tincture, and I suggest you spray it onto your skin, does not last for hours and hours and hours, and if you continue to be out, you might want to repeat it. But we find it just about 100% effective in preventing not just tick bites, but mosquitoes, uh, mayflies. It's not very effective against the noceums, sorry. And you know the story of the noceums, yes? Mm -hmm. All right, the native people said, you have been so unkind to us white people that we are going to come back as little insects you can't see and plague you. <laughs> right, and thus noceum. So right? Can you take the flower from the year or the catnip and make a oil out of it? I don't know. The U.S. Army didn't test that. They only tested the tincture. Oh, so they okay. put it like some kind so, of... Oh, make a tincture. They only tested it in a tinctured form. So certainly it's wide open to explore. I use yarrow tincture for so many different things that, that it's just easier for me to use the yarrow tincture. It also, tinctures travel a lot better than oils. All right, there was the notable time when I'm getting off the airplane and the woman behind me says, dear, your luggage is dripping. That was the last time I took an herbal oil with me in an airplane. Right? <laughs> and I don't check luggage, ever. So, so that meant, yeah, no more oil. I'll take a tiny little tin of a really thoroughly beeswax ointment. Uh -huh. <laughs> but that's about it. Because the, the, the oily things, they just don't travel.
but the yarrow travels really, really well. And yarrow can be sprayed on a wound. It stops bleeding. It's an antiseptic. It uh, stops pain. It aids healing. It can be used as a dentifrice. It tightens your gums. It gets rid of gum disease. It prevents cavities. There's just so many uses for yarrow tincture. I remember you so, saying in your book for menopause that it was also good for cranky old woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yarrow. You know, it just does everything for us. All right, it can make you pee, it can stop menstrual flooding, it can make you sweat, it goes on, oh, the uses of yarrow go on and on and on, a delicious herb, Holly. When you say flowering top. yarrow, does that mean you only use the top? I'm saying the flowering top. Usually so the flowering top is about the top third of the plant. Oh, okay. The flowering top is usually considered to be, if this plant had a flower, it would be about that much of it. Oh, of course it has leaves in it. It has leaves on stalk in it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's the white flowering yarrow, not the cultivars. The red and yellow flower cultivars are much more like tansy than like yarrow in their medicinal action. With the yarrow and catnip Topically, exactly. That's what we're doing. We're spraying it on our ankles, spraying it on our faces. You would keep it at the concentrated level it was at, or would you? Absolutely, it? Yeah. just ex that false tincture sprayed right on. Now I make tinctures in vodka, okay, yeah. so they're really nice on the skin. Mm -hmm. The vodka is just lovely on your skin. The grain alcohol is not nice on your skin. Uh, and that's why people will often will dilute it before they apply it. Because what, is the, what does your plant material look like if you make a tincture in grain alcohol? At, the plant material when that tincture is done. Has anybody made a tincture in grain alcohol? The plant material will look fried. Fried. All right, try it. Get, get some grain alcohol and, and make a tincture from some fresh plant like dandelion. And after six weeks, the dandelion that was in that grain alcohol will look like you had deep fat fried it. Like it will be crunchy? It doesn't surprise me. Almost crunchy, yeah. It's like all the tissues all like... <laughs> Whereas the stuff you take out of your vodka tincture, you could put in your salad. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts about 80 proof versus 100 proof? If 80 proof doesn't work. I'd rather have 100 proof. You have to have 100 proof. Where are you I getting your... You have to have 100 proof. Where do you get any liquor store? Any liquor store sells 100 proof vodka, and if they don't, make them. Yes. Um, does it have to be organic? I does it have to be organic? It's completely up to you. Okay. I was able to get some organic vodka last. I bought a case of it, mm -hmm. but it's, it's only 80 proof. Won't work. So not even a tincture is a tincture because of osmosis. Damn, now I have to just drink it. <laughs> <laughs> right, so uh, osmo osmosis, she knows what osmosis is, but some of you may not know what osmosis is. So osmosis is the desire of things on either side of a semi-permeable membrane to equalize. So a plant has a cell wall, which is a semi-permeable membrane, and there's water in the plant. 
most plants, of course it's gonna vary. Was it a really hot summer, there'll be less. Was it a really wet spring, there'll be more. What part of the plant is it, you know? There'll be more in various parts of the plant. But just as a generalized rule, the plant, the fresh plant is 75% water. So if you harvest four ounces of nettle and dry it, you get one ounce of nettle because you have dried away that 75% that was water. Right. So on one side of our semi-permeable membrane, we have 75% water. Now we have 80 proof vodka, which is how much water? 60%. The, the proof is twice the amount of alcohol. So it's 40% alcohol and 60% water. So you're not going to get a very strong osmosis because the difference between 75 and 60 is pretty close. And once it once it's equalizes, then osmosis stops. 100 proof vodka is 50% water. Now we have a real gradient differential, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're going from 75 to 50. So we're really going to pull out of that plant into our 100 proof vodka. And people have said, well, couldn't I just use 80 proof and take twice as much? No. Because the process, the osmosis has stopped before you've gotten most of the stuff out. What they do in commercial manufacture is they dry the plant, grind the plant into a powder, put it into a funnel-like apparatus, and pour grain alcohol through it. At that point, the grain alcohol now picks up the poisons and strips them out of the dried powdered plant and puts them into the tincture so you're not working with osmosis anymore. And vodka won't do that, which is why grain alcohol became the standard. But I prefer to use fresh plants. I prefer to use fresh plants in a story way, because I think the fresh plant contains the spirit of the plant. Would you let it wilt a little bit first? No, I would not. Okay. Absolutely not. I don't want that fairy leaving. Once it's wilted, the fairy's gone. Okay. okay. All right. I want the fairies. I want the spirit of the plant. I want that particular energetic thing. One of the ways that I came to this was, I was with a, a really dear friend. She's dead now, Misha Edith. And we went out to my swamp and we harvested skullcap. And we walked back, it's not very far, maybe 10 minutes, and I chopped my skullcap up, put it in a jar, and poured 100 proof vodka over it. And Edith kept hers because she was gonna go home and make her tincture, and we had a cup of tea and a chat. So, I don't know, she was there maybe another hour and then drove home, she lives about an hour away. So, there was about a two and a half hour difference between my tincture and her tincture. Other than that, it was the same skullcap, and we both used 100 proof vodka. And for some reason, I don't even know what it was, I had some occasion to use some of her skullcap tincture and I said, oh my gosh, this is like so different than mine. And I went and got mine and we compared them and because hers was wilted, there was an, you could energetically feel the difference. In fact, now I don't even, Take that 10 minutes. I take the, the vodka in the jar to the skullcap swamp with my scissors, and as soon as that skullcap is in the jar, I make the tincture. And I like to harvest skullcap when there's a thunderstorm. Could you just like take a jar of vodka? 
out there and just keep shoving the plant in to, or would you do that? I don't shove plants in because, <laughs> because you know I, mean. I do not have enough surfaces for osmosis. I chop it up. Okay. Chop it up. You also will never get enough plant material in the jar if you shove it in the jar. Okay. Right? I came in and an apprentice had decided to make cronewort vinegar. And there were three jars of cronewort vinegar that she had made and she had stuffed the herb into the jar. And I said to her, nope, not good enough. What I want you to do is to pour the vinegar out of all three of these jars into some other container. We'll use that vinegar and then take your plant material and chop it up. She had one jar of cronewort vinegar. Mm -hmm. The amount that she shoved into three jars and they looked full to her when chopped up filled only one jar. You will not get enough plant material in your jar if you shove it in. Plus, you want that open surface area for that osmotic process to work, right? And thunderstorm for the... The thund thunderstorm for skullcap, because it's a, a, a plant that really acts on the nervous system, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Tell you why. <laughs> pick it during the rain? I pick it during the lightning. lightning. Oh, okay. I'm in the Catskills. But why? We, we have thunder and lightning, and it may not even rain. But we'll have a lot of thunder and lightning. It, w w sometimes it'll like thunder and lightning for a while, and then it'll be <laughs> a deluge. But you can see we have a, a, a little boat. She's got her yarrow <laughs> in a sprayer, right? And we have a little boat out on the Hudson. And we, uh, when we're out in the Hudson, we can look up into the mountains, and you can see the rain clouds, and you can see it raining here, but not here or here. Very localized, right? But the whole area is being shook by the lightning and thunder, right? But it's just raining in this one little part of it, right? So that's the kind. Plus, what does lightning, lightning brings ozone into the air, right? So I'm reacting to that. My tissues are reacting to that. Is it too imaginative to think the plant tissues are reacting to that? I don't think so. No, I think that ozone in the air, that all living tissues are reacting to that, and I want a little of that in my tincture there to, to get the best of the skullcap. Um, one year when I was teaching at the American Herbal Guild, um, there was a vendor who had tinctures from Australia, and they were all made in the way that I have been talking about, that commercial tinctures are made. The dried plant was powdered, and grain alcohol was poured through it. And I challenged the women at that booth to a blindfold tincture tasting. And I named several tinctures, including Skullcap, that I invited them to bring to the blindfolded tasting. And uh, they got there, and I blindfolded them, and I gave them tincture A that I had made, fresh plant vodka, and then tincture A from theirs, which they, the best tinctures in the world, was their kind of byline, all right? And we did that with, with several plants. And they were blindfolded. They didn't know, you know, what was what. And then at the end, I took off the blindfolds and showed them the tinctures, and they did not believe me that they were the same tinctures. Fresh motherwort compared to dried powdered motherwort tincture? Fresh. <laughs> you, you would not recognize them as the same thing by taste, would you? No. You've tasted both, right? Yeah. And they're like, you would not even think it's the same plant they taste so different. 
When you taste it through the tincture, do you have to put it in water or you can put it straight in? You can put it in your mouth. You can do anything you want to, but alcoholics get oral cancer. Well, so, so, so if you're going to use tinctures as your primary medicine, then I think it wisest not to just squirt it in your mouth, huh? There are times when I squirt it, you know, somebody's turning blue, and I'm going to give them some ocean tincture. Man, I'm squirting it in right in there. I'll pull back their lip and just squirt it right there. Blah! Right? <laughs> if they're locked down and dying, you know, uh, because that's what emergency medicine is about. Emergency medicine, excuse me, I'm going to break your sternum and get your heart going. Right? I mean, you know, right? right? <laughs> you know, we don't really care how much we damage a person if we keep them alive. Right? We'll re once they're alive, we'll repair the damage. But once they're dead, we can't repair the damage. <laughs> so we'd rather have a broken alive person than a healthy dead person is basically the choice there. <laughs> right? Uh, right? No. No, for taste testing, I just put a drop or two in their hand, and they licked it up so they had some saliva in their mouth, right? They didn't just put it under their tongue, which people say, oh, just put it under your tongue. And putting it under your tongue, again, you're not swallowing it. Oh, it's going straight into your receptor. Right? It's like, uh, like giving an injection of the herb. No, it goes right into your bloodstream. A lot of blood here, right? And it's a very open area. Right. That's exactly what you do. I don't know. Anybody ever put a tincture in their nose? I do not think my nose would be happy with it, but give it a try and let us know. You know, get right to try it. You know, the great thing about herbal medicine, it's really hard to do it wrong. It's just really hard. You really have to, like, contort yourself to do it wrong. So experiment, and you don't like that experiment, you'll survive it. Mm -hmm. All right? And you'll, you, you will live to tell the rest of us, don't spray yarrow up your nose. Well, right? Well, that's a little different than a tincture. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think alcohol, I don't, just don't think my nose would like alcohol. Right. I've never tried that. I don't think it would. Can I ask a tincture question? Okay, so we've established that you need to have this 100 proof vodka. What if it was more than 100 proof? I've never seen it, but that would be fine. That would be okay. You don't have to equalize that with water to... No, absolutely not. Okay. No. There's some whiskey that has higher... There's some whiskey, well, but not vodka. So, right. like making wine, and you get something that's not right. pleasing to you, and you have it distilled. I have a... Then it's difficult to get vodka up to 100 proof. If you're making your own vodka, well, it's going to be more like 60 to 70. Vodka exclusively, so you wouldn't use, say, a plum wine that you have, you distilled because it, you wouldn't use that. Plum wine will never be more than 20%. But I'm saying if it's distilled. The distilled wine. Yes. That's like brandy. Now you have brandy. Okay. Okay, so let me just share a personal story with you. Okay. When I went to college, and I'm told that it's still the same, all socialization revolved around alcohol. Right? There was no socializing that did not include alcohol. My body does not do well with alcohol of any kind. If I drink half a glass of wine, within an hour I will feel like I have been run over by a car, and the next day I'll feel like I've been run over by a train. Not worth it for me. Absolutely not worth it for me. So I'm thinking, okay, I have no social life at all. 
And then some older woman said, Bloody Mary. Right? So you get this big tall glass of tomato juice with some vodka in it, and you have a drink. And so you're in with the in crowd because you have a drink. And it's such a big drink that you can make it last for hours. <laughs> and I did not feel like either a car or a train had run over me when I drank a Bloody Mary. And as I began to explore this, I began to realize that vodka impacts the liver in a very different way than any other kind of alcohol. Now, all I have to do is smell brandy and I get a headache. Brandy is the worst possible alcohol for my body. It, it just totally destroys me. I can't even put my finger in brandy and put it in my tongue and survive it really without tremendous pain. Because a lot of the stuff that's in the wine through that distillation process now is very attacking of the liver. So I had a correspondence course student who called me up and said, you have to help me with my mother. She's alcoholic. And I'm thinking to myself, she, I, I thought this student was in her like her 50s or 60s, right? And I'm looking at her file to see, did I get that wrong? So I, meanwhile, I'm saying to her, how old is your mother? And she said, oh, I don't know, 85 or 86. And I said to her, has your mother recently become alcoholic? She said, oh, God, no. She's been an alcoholic since she was a teenager, which is true of most alcoholics. Most alcoholics start drinking to excess between the ages of 14 and 17. They get into it very rapidly. So she basically had 70 years of alcoholism. So what's my next question? How's her liver? How's her liver doing, right? She wants help with her mom, who's an alcoholic. She's been, uh, oh, I, well, actually, the next question was, does she get drunk occasionally? She said she's an alcoholic, Susan. She gets drunk every day. Every day she drinks to excess. And I said, okay. I said, how's her liver doing? And she said, well, the doctor says her liver is doing fine. Then I asked what she drinks. And the answer was vodka. 70 years of getting drunk every single day, and her liver is doing fine. That's exactly what I experience, although I don't get drunk every day. Thank you very much. <laughs> right? That I can consume vodka, and it doesn't... Because why did I feel like I was run over by a car, run over by... My liver, right? What gives you the hangover? Your liver. Because alcohol poisons. It's a direct poison to the liver. Right. So my goal in making a medicine is to make something that does not poison my liver. So I don't use brandy and I don't use grain alcohol. I use vodka because it's not so going to poison my, my liver. Vodka is not made from only potatoes. And I don't think you would get vodka by making potato wine and distilling it. No. That's not how vodka is made. <laughs> no, any brand will do. I'm not so concerned about it being organic. It's not a really important place. There are two kinds of chemicals that we can ingest, water-soluble and oil-soluble. Right? And what happens to water-soluble chemicals when you ingest them? You pee them out. You pee out water-soluble chemicals. You Asparagus has a water-soluble chemical. 
How long does it take to pee that out? Completely or initially? Just initially. Pretty darn fast, right? Pretty darn fast, right? I've eaten asparagus in a restaurant, gotten up and gone to the toilet in the restaurant and smelled the asparagus. All right? Those water-soluble compounds, your body is getting out as fast as it possibly can. Water-soluble chemicals can be ecologically problematic, but they're not problematic in your body because they don't stay in your body. Oil-soluble chemicals do stay in your body. Most oil-soluble chemicals have a molecular size that is too large to go through the very, very tiny filters of the kidneys. So, you ingest an oil-soluble chemical, you digest that, it goes into your bloodstream, everything in your bloodstream goes through your liver on an hourly basis, there's a very fast flow through your liver, your liver is not a storage organ, things do not build up in your liver, your liver can't take those chemicals and keep them, that's not what it does. Your liver basically has three tags, and it tags the molecules that are in your blood. It says. I like you, you can stay. It says, I do not like you, go immediately to the kidneys and get out of here. Or it says, you are rather complicated, come back and we'll talk later. So that's the three tags that the liver has. The oil-soluble chemicals get the third tag, you are very complicated, come back later. So long as the liver can do tag one and tag two, easily and smoothly, it has time to deal with the things that are coming back later. When the liver is pushed by alcohol or things that are water-soluble but re require a lot of liver activity to do it, the liver never gets a chance for what's called second-pass detoxification. The stuff that comes back later, which is your oil-soluble chemicals, your hormones, and a variety of drugs that you are given, right, are detoxified by the liver on the second pass, not the first pass. So when oil-soluble chemicals come back again, the liver says, okay, uh, excuse me, you just don't belong here. You have to go to the kidneys and get pissed out. And they go to the kidneys, and the kidney says, liver, too big, forget it. And now it's back for third pass. And at the third pass, the liver says, not allowed. You are not allowed to be in the bloodstream. You are not good for us, and so we're sending you to jail. So oil-soluble chemicals wind up in jail. What jail do they wind up in? Your fat cells. Fat cells are the storage organs for chemicals in your body, not your liver. You cannot detoxify your liver. Yes, the liver is an organ of detoxification. That's what it does. But you can't detoxify your liver because there's nothing in it to be detoxified. Those things are in your fat cells. And they are called persistent organic pollutants, POPs. Not only can't your body deal with it, no living body can deal with these things. And so what happens is they are passed from smaller organisms up the food chain to bigger and bigger and bigger organisms with more and more of these chemicals in the fat of that organism. 
Inuit women and the women of the very far north who eat a very high fat diet. When I was in Alaska, if I said I'm cold, what was I told? Eat more fat. You're cold? Eat more fat. You're not eating enough fat. You're in a cold place. Eat more fat. Right? And their, their diet can be three quarters fat. They eat a lot of fat because they're, they're in a very cold place, right? And they're eating fat from seals, walruses, and whales. These are top eaters, right? Inuit women can no longer breastfeed their babies. Because they are eating animals. It doesn't have to be any pollution in the ocean at all. The ocean could be pristine. But these persistent organic pollutants are passed from living thing to living thing. Right, and they concentrate on the top of the food chain. They concentrate to the top of the food chain, exactly. So when you eat fat from the top of the food chain, you are getting massive amounts of those. And there are four ways to get pops out of your body. <clears throat> they leave with ejaculate. They are in the sperm. They leave with ovulation. They are in the egg. We have been testing cord blood, blood from the umbilical cord for decades now, and the amount of chemicals in cord blood is going up and up and up and up, because since the 50s, every sperm and every egg that's been used to make a baby has been pre-contaminated with pops. If you wanted a reason not to swallow his ejaculate. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> just spit it out. So, excuse me, that stuff is just loaded with chemicals. That's right. That's every time they ejaculate. Every time they ejaculate, they are offing pops. That's right. And every time we ovulate, we are offing pops. Except when you're not ovulating Then you're not offing them in that way. So there's two more ways. There's four ways. Okay, so you have ejaculation, ovulation. Lactation. That's why Inuit women cannot breastfeed because pops go to the milk and they are concentrated into the milk of any animal that's making milk. So, whoa, what are we saying here? That babies are made from pre-contaminated sperm and pre-contaminated eggs and fed milk, breast milk, that is loaded with pops. Is that enough to make you cry? Well, good, because that's the fourth way to get rid of them. Cry. Oh, oh, shit, I don't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> Rent a sad movie. <laughs> and if you, if you want the word that, that follows in the order, right? Ejaculation, ovulation, lactation, lacrimation, okay? The technical term for crying. Lacrimation, okay? <laughs> Those are the four ways to get rid of pops. That's it. They, you don't, they're not in your sweat. There are no chemicals in your sweat. Sweating does not get rid of chemicals. What's in your sweat? You go for a run, you're all sweaty. You come home and your dog... Your bones are in your sweat. 
The more you sweat, the more you draw down your bone mass. Interesting. Interesting, right? So you will not get rid of any chemicals by sweating, but you will get rid of your bones, right? So when you come home from that run, drink your nourishing herbal infusion, replace those minerals, not water. Persistent organic pollutants. P O P pops. Yes, persistent organic pollutants. And what exactly are those? Oh God, there's a long list. There's hundreds of them. You start with DDT, and they continue on oh. through Agent Orange. There's huge numbers of persistent organic pollutants. Uh, cord blood now contains over 600 different persistent organic pollutants. There are thousands of them. Okay, because we have put all this stuff. Certain um, isomers of plastic are persistent organic pollutants. Mm. Right. Um, the stuff that's in um, hand washes, the, uh, you know, get rid of bacteria hand washes. The triclosan is a persistent organic pollutant showing up in cord blood. <laughs> stuff. Nasty. So here's an interesting experiment they did. They took a group of Heartland American men, men from right here, right? And they took them into a controlled setting and they said, here's the food you like, eat as much as you want. But before they let them eat, they took a blood sample and they tested that blood sample for pops. And so they were able to get a blood, a, a baseline sample of pops in the men's blood. And then they said, here, you know, and you know what they ate. They ate hamburgers and french fries and pizza and sliders and sub, you know. You know what the, what the boys are eating around here, and that's what they ate. They said, here you go. And most of them were eating between 2,500 and 3,000 calories a day. Right? And you, take, you, you go, you know. Out on the sidewalk in, you know, Madison, you'll see the results of eating that many calories a day. And th at the end of the week, they measured pops in their blood again, and it was the same as baseline. Then, the second week, they said, okay, you can still eat all of these foods, but we're going to actually measure how much you eat. And when you get to 1,500 calories, bam, you don't get any more food. So they basically, like, kind of put them on a diet, Right? And they could only eat 1,500. It was the same food. And at the end of the second week, they tested POPs. And in general, POPs was twice as high as it had been at baseline. How come? Because it's stored fats. And they lost weight, and the fat went right into their body and released all the POPs. That's right. Say that again. <laughs> they lost weight because they were eating only 1,500 calories. And they mobilized fat stores to lose that weight, right? And when you do that, the pops come out of the out of jail, and now circulate in your blood. So their pop level went up. The third week, they were back to free eating as much as they wanted, and at the end of the third week, pops was back to baseline. The fourth week, they again put them on reduced calories, and at the end of the fourth week, pops were four to ten times higher in their blood. <coughs> no. Energy level. Then the next week they went back to full calorie as much as they wanted and they went back to baseline. So you could actually see in this experiment, you could see pops being released from the fat into the blood. And what happens when it's in the blood? It doesn't go out of your body. 
It just poisons you. That's why I'm curious if they didn't feel like shit during that period. These chemicals don't necessarily make you feel bad. Could, if those... I mean, this is this is really a, a, a shot, but you know, if they had been ejaculating more during that time, you know, we could speculate. Maybe weight loss is far more sustainable if it's done slowly. Sure. Far more sustainable, and you're not going to have to worry about being poisoned by pups. I'm more worried about the re removing of the removing of that those toxins of the pops so if they were to use, lose at a gradual weight of yeah. one two pounds then they basically have to ensure that they're ejaculating to try to get rid of those or crying yeah or crying yeah or crying yeah but but really the only part that really like really gets a lot out is lactation because okay. it's a subst i mean think of how much milk you would make compared to how much the ejaculate is or how much you could cry right so Cows produce milk. Mm -hmm. Milk contains these pups. Mm -hmm. Butter is made from milk. what part of the milk? Cream. The fat. So the pops are going to be more in the butter fat than they would be in the milk, aren't they? In fact, you know, it's an estimate. I sat down with charts that we have of how much food your average American eats on a yearly basis? So your average American eats X pounds of sugar and X pounds of tomato and X number of avocados, right? And we have this information of what your average American eats, right? So I was able to like look at this. And then I also had a chart about the most used chemicals on each one of these foodstuffs. So your average American eats this much tomatoes and these chemicals are on the tomatoes. And from that, I made a rough estimate that the amount of persistent organic pollutants in one pound of non-organic butter is roughly equivalent to the amount of persistent organic pollutants that you will get from eating non-organic produce for 10 years, which is where we started. Organic vodka is so unimportant. Is your butter organic? Is your olive oil organic? Is every nut that you eat organic? Is every bean, beans contain fat, organic? Is every bit of grain that you eat, grains contain fat? These are where you're picking up persistent organic pollutants, not in your vodka. People tend to do organic backwards, don't they? Right? They don't want to buy organic butter because it's too expensive. Well, I buy organic butter wholesale, and I go in the health food store, and they're selling it at below wholesale. It's a lost leader in most health food stores. They'll sell you the organic butter for less than they paid for it. To get you, it's a lost leader. Come on in. You want your butter? Come on in. We'll give you a good price on that organic butter. Well, you want it to move, too. Yeah. Right. Actually, it's, organic butter stays a fairly long time. So... I, sure, you can use organic vodka, but I don't think it's really, really important. So, can somebody give me a time check? I'm, oh, shit. Okay. All right. Drugs, supplements, foods, and your own genetics and your gut flora stimulate or inhibit the production of specific liver enzymes that metabolize drugs changing the amount of drug in the blood, increasing side effects, and decreasing benefits. Drugs, it turns out, are not completely predictable. 
Laura Robotsky, a metabolomics researcher, says drug metabolism is largely environmental. How stressed you are and what gut microbes you've got are going to determine how much of that drug actually has effect in your body. Drug-drug interactions. Prescribed drugs interact with everything, including other prescribed drugs, over-the-counter drugs, and foods. Be sure to ask your pharmacist to check interactions whenever you start a new drug or visit a website devoted to interactions. It is almost always dangerous to mix alcohol and drugs. Now, somebody called me up and she said, Hug! Oh, I'm killing my husband. He's taking this, this drug. And I looked at it and it says, You cannot consume alcohol when you take this drug. And I've been having him take tinctures. And I said, Get a grip. Yes, a tincture is in an alcohol base, but one ounce of tincture is 40 dropperfuls. One dropperful of tincture is one fortieth of an ounce. That's not what they mean. They mean don't drink a glass of wine, don't drink six beers, don't have two whiskey sours. That's what they mean when they say don't mix alcohol and drugs. They are not saying don't use tinctures and drugs because you're not drinking an ounce of tincture. Drug-food interactions. Foods interfere with drugs. Even seven to eight ounces of grapefruit juice will cause adverse interactions with 85 common drugs, including anti-infectives and statins. Most drugs, even vitamins, interfere with nutrient uptake. Drug muggers provide specific information on deficiencies caused by drugs. A book called Drug Muggers, and this information is being more widely disseminated that every single drug interferes with your ability to digest out and absorb critically important nutrients. These drugs reduce vitamin B12 le levels, methotrexate, colchinine, metformin, anti-seizure drugs like Dilantin, non-statin cholesterol-lowering drugs like Cholestid, PPIs like Prevacid and H2 blockers like Zantac. Vitamin B12, lack of vitamin B12 literally makes you crazy. Many, many elder people are diagnosed as being demented. When they ain't demented, they simply do not have enough vitamin B12. So this is a critically important thing to understand. And that's one of the reasons that you instinctively said metformin, no. I could just feel it making changes in my body. Exactly, exactly. And really, in drug-herb interactions. I once collected lists of possible herb-drug interactions. I pay no attention at all to them now. The primary side effect of, of combining nutritive, adaptogenic, and tonic herbs with drugs is better health. Let me read that again. The primary side effect of combining nutritive, adaptogenic, and tonic herbs with drugs is better health. I cannot tell you how many books say this herb impacts blood sugar levels. Therefore, do not take it if you are taking diabetic drugs. Now, that just seems backwards to me. This herb impacts blood sugar levels, take less drug. I can say that I have had to take this drug in the past 
many times and it's always made me not feel good and now and I'm feeling fine taking my herbal taking exactly just like a great you've herbal taken doxycycline before yes and you felt bad yes and now you're interfacing nutritive tonic and adaptogenic herbs and you feel better and that's the answer to the people who said, what can I use when somebody's going through cancer treatment? And I'm doing a class on that. I think it's tomorrow. So we'll get into some specifics. About 94% of Americans now take both prescription drugs and a dietary or herbal supplement. Half of those combinations could have potential interactions. Three to 6% do. The level of herb-drug interaction is very, very low. There is a relationship between the level of processing of herbal dietary supplements and the length of the DNA fragments they contain. The more processed the ingredients are, the more fragmented the original DNA becomes. As a result, DNA barcoding in highly processed botanical materials often results in finding, indicating the absence of any DNA or finds DNA from excipients or fillers, says the American Botanical Council in response to large-scale tests of herbal supplements which revealed that they didn't have the labeled herb in it. And the American Botanical Council said, you're wrong because you did DNA testing and the powdered herb in that supplement is so processed that you can't find the DNA anymore in there, even if it is the herb. Is the obvious question, isn't it? Herbs in capsules are the most likely to interact poorly with drugs, right? Are we understanding why? Because the herb in the capsule is a process thing. There's a plant that grows in China, and it's been used for at least 3,000 years. It actually appears in the Yellow Emperor, which was written 3,000 years ago, and claims to have information that's 3,000 years old. So it could have been used for 6,000 years. We don't really know. All right? But this herb has been used in China for at least 3,000 years to help people who are asthmatic. All right? And we've never had any problem. The same plant, well, different species, but the same plant grows in Utah, and Mormons use it, and they call it Mormon tea. What's the name of this plant? Ephedra. Now, you take ephedra, powder it, and put it in a capsule. People die like that. People died all over the place from taking powdered ephedra in capsules as weight loss. The worst side effects, and so far as I can tell, Virtually all interactions occur when herbs are taken, powdered, dried, powdered, and put in a capsule. The only exception to this would be mushroom products. And mushroom products do tend to come dried and powdered, however you get them, although Paul Stamets does make tinctures. However, understand that when his products have been scientifically studied, only the capsules have been studied. Right? The dried, powdered, encapsulated herb. If you don't want to take it in a capsule, open the capsule, sprinkle it in your food. 
sprinkle it in some. You can always do that. I wouldn't do that with an herb, but I would do it with a mushroom powder. Right. Because I don't think the mushrooms are as highly processed as the herbs are in those capsules. In general, herbal teas, infusions, vinegars, tinctures, and honeys, but not capsules, interact with drugs in beneficial ways, countering drug side effects and helping drugs work longer and more effectively. For example, drinking tea of fennel seed or raspberry leaf when you take acetaminophen counters your pain longer and interferes with the formation of NAPQI, which is incredible, incredibly problematic metabolite. People who take acetaminophen on a regular basis wind up with problems, right? If you drink fennel seed tea or raspberry leaf tea when you're taking it, you won't wind up with those problems. Is that in your book right there, too? I'm reading to you from the book. This will be published in October. This is the bound printed galleys, right? These are the corrections needed. <laughs> See, I told you, my book looks like a sea of orange went through it, right? Now, I will admit, many of these highlighted words, I'm go I will index the book, and I'm going through highlighting words that will be in the index, so it's not quite as bad as you might think. <laughs> yeah, there are a dozen copies of this book here, which are, will be at the vendor area, and you're welcome to borrow them, mark them up, and what we just ask is that you don't borrow it for an extended period of time, like borrow it overnight or borrow it during the day, and then put it back so another person can borrow it. If um, you really want one for your own, and it is a bound printed galley, it's, it's not the whole thing. Um, there, are, there are things that are going to be changed in here. Um, you can write to me and send me $10. And I will very happily send you a copy of this if you send it back to me um, with a, um, a review that you have posted somewhere. Um, then I will give you a copy of the book for free. Right? And return your $10 to you. Or if you just want to keep it, then you're out your $10. And you tell me you've written a review, I'll still give you a free copy of the, the book when you get it, when it comes out. I love your choice of the cover. That's probably my favorite picture to view. <laughs> Yay, my daughter Justine. She said, we're going for mainstream in this cover. <laughs> and we've made another change to the cover. This is now red, a red seal with a red ribbon coming down it from it. And it says seven medicines. So we're still working on it. We're still working on it. Okay. Eating blueberries makes radiation therapy more effective. So does taking ginseng. Daily use of ginkgo biloba extract plus aspirin is associated with less cognitive divine, decline and improved executive functioning following stroke compared with just aspirin alone. Ginkgo biloba okay. combined with the aspirin after a stroke gotcha. will, will gotcha. reduce gotcha. cognitive decline and improve executive function. Right when the stroke is like within that hour period? It, usually the aspirin therapy is used afterwards. After somebody has a stroke, they're usually put on aspirin therapy. Okay. Right. Preventive though. As, 
That, I mean, that's what... Come on. It's called a preventative, but that's not the truth of the matter now, is it? There are two kinds of stroke. A bleeding stroke and a clot stroke. Mm -hmm. Clot stroke, you have to give a drug that dissolves the clot. A bleeding stroke, you have to give a drug that stops the bleeding. It's pretty hard to tell what caused the stroke when we're just faced with somebody. So you choose the wrong drug, they're dead. So the decision was that we would put all people over a certain age on blood thinners so that when we had, they have a stroke, we know what caused it. Oh, Jesus, exactly, right? So no, a blood thinner causes strokes, but we know that you're having a hemorrhagic stroke, so we'll give you the right drug for it. As a matter of fact, the whole thing of giving people daily aspirin to prevent strokes and heart attacks is deeply under question now. Because in fact, more people are dying from aspirin therapy than are not dying from stroke and cardiovascular problems. Yeah, it's, re it's a real example of the overuse of what was put out as an absolutely benign drug. Right, not. Antihypertensive herbs help antihypertensive drugs. I know thousands of people who take Hawthorne and antihypertensive drugs, or motherwort and antihypertensive drugs, or passiflora and antihypertensive drugs. Now, to me, I believe that the pages in this book that are going to be the most replicated and perhaps the most useful are these pages. This says pain relief alternatives, pain relief drugs. Right? Here we have sedative tranquilizing sleepy alternatives, sedative tranquilizing drugs, right? There are a dozen of these sets, antibiotic alternatives, antibiotic drugs with all the side effects of the drugs listed on the drug page. Antihypertensive alternatives, antihypertensive drugs. So I have paged it out for you in paired pages so that you can not only see the side effects of the drugs, but can see what your alternatives are to stop taking those drugs, but you will begin by taking the herb with the drug because most people are afraid to stop taking their drugs. So you stabilize them by having them take the herb with the drug and then they withdraw from the drug because the herb is now doing its work. Antidepressant herbs help antidepressant drugs. Who has been told that you can't take hypericum perforatum with, with antidepressant drugs? It's really common knowledge. Bunch of bullshit. I'm sorry. Unless we're talking about hypericum perforatum dried powder and put the capsule. Right? If we're talking about hypericum perforatum St. Jones wort, I call it, many people call it St. John's wort. If we're talking about the tincture made from the fresh plant, it will improve the effectiveness of those drugs, allowing people to take less and to get off it sooner. Again, Understand that virtually any study done on herb-drug interaction has been done with a dried powdered herb processed and put into a capsule. For a short period of time, I was a consultant for the National Institutes of Health Alternative and Complementary Medicine program, 
And I had to just stop because it was making me nuts. Because they would say, we're going to study Dong Kwai. And I'm like, oh, that's great. We've decided the active ingredient of Dong Kwai is this. And now we're going to put it in a capsule and study it. I'm like, wait, wait, that's not Dong Kwai. So your information is either on the dried powdered herb in a capsule or on an active ingredient taken from the herb and given to people and now studied. And this is the information that makes people say herbs and drugs interact. All right? Heart-healthy herbs help heart drugs. Add a drug with a side effect of drowsiness and a soporific herb, and indeed, you are more likely to fall asleep unexpectedly. But add vitamin K-rich leafy greens, including nettle infusion, when you're taking an anticoagulant, and you will be just fine. Right? How many people who are taking anticoagulants are told, you can't eat leafy greens now? Why? I know thousands of people who drink nettle infusion, eat cooked greens on a daily basis, and take an anticoagulant and say to the doctor, you know, I'm eating a lot of leafy greens. And the doctor says, well, that's odd. The drug seems to be working. <laughs> Remember, the goal is to take less drugs. Yes? Is that our goal? Not to be afraid of herbs and drugs, but to take less drugs. For abundant health, we want to return to the other side of the Great Divide, replacing drugs first with herbs and then with lifestyle and other elements of abundant health. In the pages that follow, I offer you the best alternatives to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. A recent 2016 review of more than two dozen studies in which patients discontinued their medication, including sedatives like Valium as well as blood pressure drugs, says John Schumann, MD, found that people did surprisingly well when they stopped taking drugs. Their adverse symptoms abated and their health generally improved. Right? And they weren't even using herbs. They just stopped taking their drugs. Golly gee, two and a half hours went fast. Did we get enough? Sorry. Take home point. Use drugs and herbs together. Yes? yes? Yeah. Not a single one of us, and some of us have been using herbs and drugs together for over 50 years, right? Not a single one of us has seen anybody die or have a major adverse reaction. Have you ever seen that? No. 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 No, I have, I have asked this question a great many times of people who have interfaced herbs and drugs, and we have never seen an extreme adverse reaction. Be free. Enjoy. Use your herbs and drugs if you must use drugs, but use the herbs to gradually get yourself off the drugs.